0: Well, as Dan mentioned, um, a few months ago now, a, lot, a couple of series ago, Chris and I did a couple of weeks talking about baptism, why we do it the way that we do it as a covenant church, as a manual covenant church. And as a result, we heard back from several of you, a number of you actually, that reached out and said, Boy, we would love to take that next step uh, of baptism. People that uh, perhaps hadn't been baptized, uh, one couple that uh, had been wanting to do it for like 25 years and for a number of different reasons never got to it. And now we're going to be able to do it and do it together. Uh, another couple that uh, both of them were baptized as infants, and they said, Boy, now we really want to do this and we want to do it as our own expression of kind of uh, one with oneness with Christ and with this community. So, we've heard from a lot of you, and if there are more that would like to consider taking this step, uh, talk to me. We'd love to connect you with this public expression of your desire to follow Christ. We're gonna have a pool that we bring out here, and we're gonna have an outdoor baptism service, and it'll be a blast, and we've never done that before or out Maybe we've done it before. We've had quite a, few we've had quite a them, p- but not as an outdoor service. service. Chris is here to fact check me. <laughs> Don't do that during the sermon unless nope. we can talk, we can talk later. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's dive in. Uh, We are continuing today in the series. And if you don't have a Bible at home, the Bible is really central to what we think is our code for life. Uh, So we have one that we'd love to give you. They're here at the the doors. And if the exit says you leave, you're welcome to take one of those. We'd love to give it to you as a gift. We are in the series called As You Are. And in this series, we are asking the question how do we make our homes the primary place where faith is formed for ourselves, for our families? And I know that for me, home is the primary place where my kids fight with each other, <laughs> right? It's the primary place where authority figures yell at them because teachers don't do that anymore. But I do. <laughs> I know that home is the primary place where, you know, we as a family have been nice all week and have tried so hard all week to be nice. And we can finally come home and just let it all out and just be mean and rancorous. Right? Because we love each other and we have to be nice to each other, or we have to love each other so we're in family, so we just can kind of be our, our real selves. I remember a couple of years ago when Ben was just starting school, he came home one Friday night and he was being a little bit of a such and such. And uh, we said, Ben, your teachers say that all week long you're so obedient and so nice and so, you know, what's going on? How come we don't see that kid. And Ben said, Dad, I work so hard all week long to be good. I just have to let my naughty out. <laughs> And the truth is you all do that too. It's just as an eight-year-old, he knows that he's doing it. We, we pretend it's something else. My home is the primary place where me and my family experience all of that. But is it the primary place where faith is formed? Would my kids say that it's the primary place where faith is formed. Chris pointed out last week that we often tend to think of church or youth group or missions trips or camp experience as being those primary places where faith are formed. And those are incredibly valuable and incredibly important and keep doing them, but they're not enough. An hour on Sunday or an hour on Wednesday night or a week at camp is really powerful, but it's not enough to sustain vital spiritual health. There needs to be more than that. Um, Chris last week introduced us to a new axiom. We've, we've had an axiom in the past. that says, we don't want to outsource our outreach. And he introduced us to a new one. It's this. We don't want to delegate our discipleship. And that phrase, when he said that last week, I wrote it down. I, it resonated with me. This idea that we don't want to just hire people to do our discipleship for us. And I processed that. I thought about it. I talked about it with a number of different people during the week. But then as I thought about it, I started to think like, well, do I Do I get that? Do I agree with that? Is that really who we are? And Chris invites that sort of pushback, that sort of feedback to ask the question, is that true? How do we process that in our lives? And I thought about this. I mean, the truth is we encourage you to bring your kids to youth group, right? And isn't that at least at some level delegating to Dan and to Caitlin and to the incredible volunteers who work with our kids and teens? Isn't that in some way delegating discipleship to them? Perhaps. So you hold that up against this, this axiom, we don't want to delegate our discipleship. And, and I had to really process that and think about that. And I, and I think perhaps it's this. What that axiom speaks to is not so much that we can't ever work in cooperation with others, or that we can't employ others to, to help us to grow. This axiom is really a lot more about whose responsibility is discipleship. And the responsibility for discipleship. Lies on us. That's the first fill in that you have there. It answers the question, who is responsible for your discipleship, for your family's discipleship, for your spouse's discipleship. Oftentimes we think of it as the church, right? But, but is it, I, I think it's similar to what we often do with our health care and with our own health self Care. I think we sometimes make the mistakes of thinking that if we're not in good health, that it's somehow a failure of the healthcare system, or somehow a failure of our doctors, or a failure of our insurance company. And I don't want to get into the insurance healthcare debate. We'll, we'll leave that for others smarter than me. But my point is if I smoke too much, if I drink too much, if I eat too much, if I never exercise, then it's not my doctor's fault that I'm not healthy. It's not my health care provider or the insurance company's responsibility. It's mine. I am responsible for my health, and so are you, ultimately. But then having acknowledged that we are responsible for our health, that we have then these resources that we can work in cooperation with, doctors who we can go and consult and who can speak into our lives and speak truth into our lives. Yes, we should build health care systems that are as strong, as robust as they possibly can be, but it's still ultimately our responsibility to ensure that we are healthy. And it's not the choices that I make when I'm in the doctor's offices that are going to primarily shape my health, right? I can make lots of commitments when I'm sitting there face to face with my often disapproving doctor, (laughs) but it's what I choose to do every day in my real life, in my home and in my schedule and in my calendar, in what I eat and what I drink. In the exercise I do, or as my family will tell you, don't do. And I'm responsible. No one can do it for me. I can't delegate. I can't hire it out. My everyday choices determine my health. Similarly, it's the everyday patterns, the everyday choices, the everyday intentionality or lack of intentionality that determines our spiritual health, our spiritual. Vitality and the choices that we make in our homes, I think perhaps determine more about us and our health than anything else in our lives. And so it's exactly to those everyday choices, the practical everyday application that the writer of Deuteronomy is writing. For review, to the sake of review, uh, Moses is writing to Israel. And Israel has spent, you know, 40 years wandering in the wilderness. And for 40 years, they've experienced God firsthand. They've experienced manna and miracles and provisions and pillars of fire and smoke and, you know, amazing experiences of God. But now they're about to go into this promised land that God has promised. They're about to, to, to be delivered to that. And Moses is writing to them with very practical direction, even warning about how they should live day in and day out writing to let them know how they can experience the rich, incredible blessings of living God's way and avoid the very real devastating pain of living their own way. Moses writes this in chapter six. These are the commands, decrees and regulations that the Lord, your God commanded me to teach you. You must obey them in the land that you were about to enter. And occupy, and you and your children and grandchildren must fear the Lord your God as long as you live. If you obey all his decrees and commands, you will enjoy a long life. Listen closely, Israel, and be careful to obey. Then all will go well with you, and you will have many children in the land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. This whole book of Deuteronomy. Is full of these sorts of statements, these promises and warnings. If you obey, then things will go really, really well for you. And if you don't, they won't. It's all very, very practical stuff. Choose life, not death. And the fact that God is making this so clear for them, that he's actually laying out for them line by line. This is what obedience looks like. These are my expectations for you. This is how you will please me. That's a gift. There's not a mystery to this. He's given us the standard. He's given us the rules, the decrees. And then the rest of the chapter six that goes on from here, because these really practical ways to living it out starting in verse seven. It basically says like, you know, write this stuff down, put it on your, on your doorpost and on your doors and teach it to your kids and recite it every day. It's the equivalent of saying, put this on a post-it note on your mirror and on your dashboard and on your office wall and everywhere you go. So that these concepts are integrated into every aspect of your life. So that, and it's an important, so that, so that, it will go well for you. That is God's desire for his people, for his children, that it would go well for them. But in between verses three and seven, there are a couple of verses that are so central to understanding this. That I want to camp out there just for a little bit. In fact, they're so central that they have their own name within Jewish tradition. These verses they're referred to. They're called the Shema Yisrael, which means Hear, O Israel. In in Jewish literature, it's simply called the Shema or Shema. And Shema is central. These are the very first verses that every Jewish child learns to recite by heart. These are so central that Orthodox observant Jews today still recite these words twice a day in the morning and the evening. It's the creed of the Jews. It says, Hear, O Israel, Shema Yisrael. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command to you today shall be on your heart. The rabbi Hillel, who is one of the most significant figures in Jewish history back in the first century, was quoted to say something like the Shema is the centerpiece of, of the entire Jewish old Testament, the entire Jewish scriptures, and that everything else is just commentary. That's how central this is for him. Jesus himself. When asked, what's the most important commandment said, love the Lord, your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. He quotes Shema and he says, all of the law, all of the prophets are summed up in that. And the rest is commentary. He didn't actually say that, but that's, that's what's implied. (laughs) So Shema is central. But what does it mean? What does it mean for us? What does it mean for our culture? That opening phrase, hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Like a lot has been applied back onto this, you know, ideas of Trinitarianism and, you know, this theological truths that, that the Lord is one. I think perhaps better interpreted for our sake, you would read something like this. Listen and remember, Israel, the Lord, our God, Yahweh is Is unique. There are no other gods, no other beings, no other things, nothing else that's worth worship. And it's really clear if you read the the passages right before this and the passages right after this, this theme that Yahweh is the only true God and that he has done so many great things for Israel to show that he's the only God and that he won't tolerate any other gods runs through the entire book. In chapter 5, which we know is the Ten Commandments, it says this. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Right out of the gates, that's the thing he leads with. No other gods before me. Number two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that's in the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, and this part is interesting, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments and just briefly sticking on this. I mean, he's defining those who hate me as those who make carved images of, of likenesses of anything on earth that we bow down and worship and serve. Think about that. Verse, uh, I'm sorry, commandment number three then is you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. These first three commandments are all about the fact that God is unique, that there's no other God like him and that he is holy, that he is powerful, that nothing compares and that even using his name inappropriately makes us guilty of iniquity. The cultures all around, the Israelite people worship all kinds of God. They had a God for every season, for every weather pattern, for every life event. They had God's of fertility and rain and worship the sun and the moon and the stars and nature and storms and the wind. And Israel, as they watched these cultures around them and as they... Became closer and closer into these cultures, began to adopt and dabble into these other worship patterns, to worship these other gods, these gods who were ferocious, these gods who were sexy, these gods who were powerful, these gods who were popular. And so Moses is speaking very specifically into Israel's well established pattern of turning to other gods. Again, and again, and again, when things went badly for them, or when things went too well for them, or if it was Tuesday, um, regularly turning to these other gods, and he's saying, Yahweh is our God. He alone is our God. And he's saying, and this is your second fill-in, Yahweh won't be one of your gods. He doesn't even want to be your favorite god. He wants to be your only God and Yahweh is jealous. What does that mean? God is jealous. It's a weird phrase, right? Does it mean that God is petty? I think for us in our culture, in our language, if you say someone's jealous, it usually refers to some kind of junior high games where people are bickering over who's got the best shoes or something stupid like that, right? Or if somebody's jealous, it's an adult who perhaps has a controlling and possessive relationship with somebody else. Or they're jealous of their lifestyle or whatever. It's never positive in our culture. So is that what Moses is suggesting here about God? Is that what God is speaking about himself in the commandments? Or is it more like this? Let me speak for a minute to the guys uh, because I'm a guy. Guys, imagine how much you love your wife. Imagine how much you adore her and the relationship that you have with her. Now imagine a third party, another person was coming in. He was trying to weasel in, trying to work his way into that relationship and begin to divide you, to say things about you that aren't true, to offer things to your wife that are better than you can offer. And if you wanted to destroy your family and break up this thing that you've created and that you love and cherish so much... I think in response to that, anger is absolutely appropriate. Jealousy is absolutely appropriate. And that's the picture that scripture paints of God's relationship with his people. He calls us his bride. That's the kind of love, the kind of cherishing that he has for us. One author wrote these words, no dedicated husband or wife having integrity wants to share their spouse with a substitute. Neither does God. God expects our exclusive devotion when we give preference to anything instead of God, it's idolatry. We are committing spiritual idolatry, and God displays divine jealousy. There's a powerful phrase in there that I don't want us to miss. When we give preference to anything instead of God, it's idolatry. Think about that. Let's get back for a minute to this Deuteronomy 6, the Shema. In some ways, the Shema is sort of a formula. For success. It, it is, in some ways, the whole thing summed up. This is the, the Old Testament, the New Testament. All of it's summed up. All the law and the prophets are summed up in this and the rest is commentary. And yet, it's not some sort of ivory tower theological truth. And I think we sometimes turn it into that. Like, yep, I believe. I give mental assent to the fact that God is one, that he's the only God, and that he's three, but somehow he's one. And we put all this theological stuff around it. And all of that is true, but that's certainly not Moses' point. For Moses, Deuteronomy is not primarily a theological book. It's a how-to book. It's how do you actually live this truth out every moment of every day from generation to generation to generation. If we want to experience God's faithfulness, Moses says, and God's blessing then we need to first be willing to get rid of all the other gods in our life. And if history is any lesson for us, if Israel's story has any lesson for us, and I think it probably does, then I think we have to acknowledge the fact that gods have a tendency to work their will, their self back into our lives. My family right now is in the middle of a remodeling project at the Peterson house. Everybody done a remodeling project recently super fun and stressful and dust everywhere, but everybody's involved. This is my daughter, Ellie, and she's painting there, which has been really, really fun. It's been, uh, we decided to actually finish our kind of finished basement and it's been fun mostly, but there've also been tears and stress and junk. Frankly, it's been framing and sheetrocking and mudding and taping, but it wasn't any of those things. The sheet rocking and mudding and taping and all of that, that was really hard that caused the yuck and the tears. No, you know what was way harder than painting or mudding or taping or sheet rocking way harder than that was clearing out 12 years of junk from our basement. Can I get an amen? <laughs> I think I have a picture of that pile of junk here. My wife, I, I did get my wife's permission to show this by the way, this is literally like 12 years of buildup in a nasty seventies couch And everything's in tubs. And what's horrible is this is just one of the piles. There's another room that's full from floor to ceiling with boxes and stuff. And as we were going through it, we realized there were boxes that we had moved from our previous house 12 years ago and had never even opened. I mean, I don't mean break the seal. Nothing. We found wedding presents that had never been taken out of their packaging. (laughs) It was our 21st anniversary this week. (laughs) We found Christmas presents that we bought because they were on clearance during the year and stashed downstairs years ago. And we've now been storing that good deal for years. And so the real work was going through all of that stuff and it's not yet complete. Frankly, we've just put piles where we can work around them. I should have gotten a picture of my dad actually built the system where it's like a huge trolley wagon with the stack of stuff that you can now move the pile of junk (laughs) so you can work around it. That should inform me of something. But the point is this. Before we could experience this good, a finished basement where our kids and our family can have so much fun, where the the neighbors can come over and experience love and joy and all things. before we can experience any of that, We have to do the real hard, not yet complete work of clearing out the junk. And we've not completed that yet. And as a result, it's been hard, but we couldn't experience the wonderful until we cleared out the junk. It's not a perfect analogy because mine never are, but I think it's part of what the text is saying. We can't experience, we won't experience the good that God has for us unless we're willing to do the real hard, not yet complete work of getting rid of the gods that we've allowed to creep back in and build up in our lives. And we all do for Israel. It was real idols, golden calves and Ashtoreth poles, and Canaanite gods. And I probably, none of us in this room struggle with those, but I think for us, it's just as hard as it was for them to not make idols If they couldn't do it and they had seen God firsthand, we are just as susceptible and we're fools to think we aren't. Chris said last week, it's hard to be a promise keeper in a promised land, in a land that is flowing with milk and honey, in a land where we are so richly blessed that it's easy for our blessings, the very gifts of God to become the things that we worship. We live in a promised land and our whole culture worship others' gods. By other gods, I don't mean Allah and Krishna. I I mean things like wealth and power and fame and prestige and success. Those are the things that our culture worships. And our culture tells us that life is supposed to be all about us and about our needs and our comforts and our entertainment. I've enjoyed the process, actually, of talking with my kids, my boys, about the whole idea of a commercial on television. That there's this whole industry that's out there to try to make me feel discontent with the life that I have. That my life isn't enough. And that if I just had that one more thing, any of you who are in marketing, I'm sorry. I'm not taking a shot at you, but it is so easy in our culture to get drawn in and pulled into this idea that we are to worship ourselves. And I think for many of us, myself included, our houses are full of gods, whether we recognize it or not for Israel, gods look like idols or objects or deities that they turned to when they were worried about their security. Or they were worried about their fame or they were worried about their power or they were worried about their crops or their pleasure or their status or their fertility. What are the things that we turn to in our culture when we face those same challenges? I put together a list and it's not exhaustive. You can probably come up with a better list. You know, your own list, but off the top of my head, I think things like our retirement plans, we put a tremendous amount of trust and faith and energy and, and, and angst into making sure that we have a big enough nest egg that we can count on it when we're done. And then we can pass it on to our children. Is that the legacy we want primarily to pass on to our children? There's nothing wrong with planning as we learned two weeks ago. Planning is great, but at some point it can easily become a God because good gifts from God can become idols. How about national security? You know, we prayed this morning about the events in Charlottesville, but all week long, the news has been full of all this news from North Korea. And it's unnerving. The rhetoric that's going back and forth across the Pacific is unnerving. So what do we do in the face of that? What is our first response? Do we first turn to God and cry out and say, God, help us, save us. God, bring peace. Or do we promise mutual destruction? <laughs> do we rely on our military might and power or even politics to fix this? How about our rights, our freedoms? That's a big one for us. We believe that our rights are God-given, and, and perhaps that's true, but there are plenty of things that are God-given that we can turn into idols that we then worship and place above the God who gives them to us. I think celebrity, I think convenience, I think social media is something that many of us worship, whether we recognize it or not. That It's become an idol that we serve. I think if aliens landed and watched our patterns of life, they would think that we worship Our tablets and our devices and our phones and maybe our pets as we walk around picking up after them, if you know what I'm saying. (laughs) I think that list could go on and on and on. Maybe I'm wrong, but ask yourself this. Which did you spend more time and energy on this week? These aren't bad things, but where did your time and energy go? Was it to your career or for your work for the kingdom? Your legacy or the legacy of the kingdom your popularity or the popularity of Christ? Your physical fitness or your spiritual fitness? Your comfort or the needs of a hurting world around you? Your entertainment or bringing joy and love to others? Now, that, those are false dichotomies. When Chris and I talked about this, this isn't an or. Those things need to be in both, but just analyzing where did your energy go? And was any amount of your energy going to some of the things in that right column? As I look at my own answers to some of these, I I fear that I spend a whole lot of time in that left column and very little in the right. How about this? Which did you spend more time this week talking to your kids or roommates or friends about their grades or their faith? Their dating life or their spiritual life? Their college and career plans or their total surrender to God and the future that he has for them? Their sports programs or their church programs? Their screen time or their time with God? Again, these are not bad versus good, but are we even talking to our kids about these things? How about this? If we asked your kids what is most important to you in your life, what would they say? your work, your vacation, your success, your car, them. I think perhaps we have to be willing to consider that whatever their answer is, that's what they think we worship. That's what we're teaching them to worship. When we give preference to anything instead of God, it's idolatry. You know, I wonder if perhaps in this series we are at least in some small way not asking the right question. Perhaps the question, how do we make our homes the primary place where faith is formed, isn't the right question. Because as we look at this, what I'm seeing is home is the primary place where faith is formed. And so the primary question we should be asking is, what faith are we forming? What are we teaching? Because they are watching us. They are seeing what we worship and forming their own ideas of what worship is based on what we are modeling for them. What do we really believe in? What do we really live for? What are we modeling for our kids? Andy Stanley this week when we were at the leadership conference said this. I thought it was great. Your greatest contribution to the kingdom of God may not be something you do, but someone you raise If you look back at that second commandment, it seems, it seems to me the way that I read that, that the decisions we make don't just impact us. They impact generation to generation to generation. Over the next two weeks, Dan and Chris are going to be presenting some really practical ways that we can build healthy patterns into our lives, build healthy, sustainable, spiritually vitalizing patterns into our life, and that's going to be great. But before we do that, I think many of us, including myself, have to do the real, hard, not yet complete work of figuring out if there are gods that we need to once again extricate from our lives. We won't experience God until we clear out the gods. Some of us may need to do the hard, real, not yet complete work of examining our lives, our homes, our daily practices to see perhaps where we have once again allowed the gifts of God to become the objects of worship, of security, of hope, of a future where we've once again placed our needs, our comfort, our convenience and priorities and agendas, no matter how good those are over Christ being King in our lives. We can't build the new until we clean out some of the old. What's that for you? I want to end by reading this quote that I came across this week from Jason Derushi. Roshi It's from Bethel Sem. The truth means that every closet of our lives needs to be open for cleaning and every relationship in our lives must be influenced. This call to love God this way with our heart our soul and our mind destroys any option for being one person at church and another person on a date. What you do on the internet needs to be just as pure as what you do in Bible reading. The way that we talk to our parents needs to be just as wholesome as the way we talk to our pastors There needs to be an authentic love for God that starts with God-oriented affections, desires, and thoughts, but then permeates our speaking and behavior and then influences the way that we spend our money and how we dress and drive and forms of entertainment. Whether we're eating or singing, jogging or blogging, texting or drawing, love for Yahweh, the one triune God, is to be in action and seen. The book of Deuteronomy is not theological book. It's a how-to book. We're meant to live this out every day. And how we live this out will determine not only our spiritual health, but the spiritual health of generations to come. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have outlined for us these ways in which we can know you and be in relationship with you, these ways in which we can experience your rich blessing. We can experience the going well for us that you intend. And, God, we acknowledge that in spite of that, our natural tendency is to try to make it on our own, to try to carve out our own way. Our natural tendency is to remove you from the throne of our lives and place ourselves in that throne. God, for that we repent. God, we ask that you would be teaching us and shaping us and placing this in our hearts. The way that you've promised to do that, you would write these truths on our hearts and then embolden us and empower us to live these truths out so that the world may see, so that our kids might see your character, your spirit reflected in us. We ask it in the name of Jesus and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.